We're looking this morning at the subject of transform thinking. Transform thinking. And I mentioned first point in your bulletin outline there, the mind of Christ. The Apostle Paul begins by a general statement concerning the offering of our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Verse 1. Well, that is the actions that we talked about last week. But we have noted that actions will never change unless we change our thinking. So in verse two, verse 2, there is a charge not to conform to the ways of the world any longer. But how's that going to happen? It's by being transformed through the renewing of your mind. Verse 2. Last week we saw that as Christians, we have been given the mind of Christ. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 16. But here we are told that we have to renew our mind. Which is why I say that having the mind of Christ is not automatic. And, and it's not uh, something that you get just because you're Christians. There's a work for us to do. It's the potential to know his mind providing we are about the work. Now, the concept of mind is not that difficult. The original language speaks of intellect, but more from the standpoint of understanding. We use the word mind in this way all the time. We say to our children, now, when we get over to the Joneses tonight for supper, mind your manners, by which we mean, think about your conduct and act appropriately. Remember your pleases and your thank yous <laughs> when you're asking for the food to be passed to you and so on. We ask our spouse, would you mind if I went shopping with Barbara on Thursday? What is this? The wife is asking her husband to tell her what he thinks about her not being home that day because she will be out shopping and the implication is that dinner might be late uh, on that particular day. Would you mind that I go shopping with Barbara on Thursday? Or if a husband and wife are wrestling with an important decision in their lives and they have not reached a consensus on the matter, the husband might say to his wife, I really need to know your mind on this matter. Translation, I would like to know what you really think about this. See how they're using the word mind? In all of these examples, we are using the word mind as a synonym for thinking. So too, when Paul says, that transformation comes by the renewing of the mind. He is saying, you will change when you are renewed in your thinking. And this is such a universal truism that we could say it this way. No one ever changes until and unless they change their mind, change their thinking. When someone gives as the reason 
They are not about to change a certain conduct in their behavior. Well, you know, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. Uh, what they are saying really is that they refuse to think differently when they have what they have thought before. They are saying to you, I don't want to change. I have no intention of changing. I like the way I am right now. And in counseling, when someone says to me, well, you know, you can't teach an old dog new tricks, I say, yeah, that's true, but you're not an old dog. See, the human heart has the capability to change. We're not run by instinct like an animal that cannot think. It is not therefore a matter of inability, but rather a refusal to change the way one thinks by discarding some of the old and erroneous and harmful baggage and accepting some new and beneficial ways of thinking about life and living. Now as Christians, we are not immune from this entrenchment, this entrenchment in ignorance and in sinful thought patterns. We struggle with the inherited sinful nature of Adam, which among other things loves sin, shuns holiness, and is preoccupied with self. Listen to the great apostle Paul as he talks about himself. Here's what he says. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being... I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind. The way I think. And making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am. So then, I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature I am a slave to the law of sin. Romans 7, verse 21 and following. This is the Apostle Paul. I think of this passage now and again when I am struggling with repetitious sin. It's a very good help. Maybe it's just because misery loves company and I like the idea that uh, I have hope when I see that the Apostle Paul struggled with sinful conduct and slavery to his old nature. And I think, well, if that's true of God's apostle, then there's hope for a poor sinful preacher like me who can't find his way through the maze of wickedness which constantly encases the mind. Maybe you're in the same boat. Paul was no ivory tower theologian. His sandals touched the dirty road of life. The same as yours and mine. We are first sinners, and first and foremost, and saints second. And saints in no sense of living like such, but saints because of the gracious cleansing and forgiveness of our sins in Jesus Christ. So herein is our great hope and victory. As Paul catalogs his failures in that Romans 7 text, he concludes, What a wretched man I am! 
You see, he, he was really seeing himself. But he didn't stop there. Praise God he didn't stop there. He went on to ask and answer the question, Who will rescue me from this body of death? And then he answers his own question. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is important to keep in mind as we talk about a transformation that takes place in thinking. Renewing the mind is not turning over a new leaf. It is not self-reformation. It is not determining a different course for your life and then going after it. Renewing the mind is offering your bodies as living sacrifices to God. It is dying to self, dying to selfishness, and in the end, it is the end of you as you perceive yourself and a putting on of the mind of Christ. Now that brings us then to the battle of two mindsets. It's interesting how often this is addressed in the Bible. When Jesus was asked which of the commandments was the most important, he replied, the most important one is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. Mark 12, verse 29 and 30. This is our great responsibility, even if our ability to do it is crippled. And what cripples us is our sinful nature. When man sinned against God, the scriptures state, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind. Romans 1 verse 28. To do what ought not to be done. And then what follows is a long list of sin, including everything from envy and deceit and gossip to slander and hating God and murder and so on. So when God is out of our thought life, then our thinking is thoughtlessly wicked and insensitive to righteousness and moral living. And don't we see that in the newspaper or the news every day? People who have who do not have God in their thought life, are doing all kinds of atrocious things. And that's why we are charged as believers to be renewed in our minds. Again, Romans 8, verse 5 and following. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their mindset on what the Spirit desires. The mind of the sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. So you see how thinking controls actions. What we set our desires on is reflective of how we think. In Philippians 3, in our meditation reading today, we read about people who live as enemies of the cross of Christ and their destiny is destruction. 
Their God is their stomach or their appetites and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things. Verse 19. In contrast, Paul told the believers of Philippi in chapter 2, verse 1 and following, If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and in purpose. And he told us how to think about those things which are good and right and true. In Ephesians 4, Paul calls for a radical change of thinking. He says, I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Notice the digression there. Darkened, ignorant, hard-hearted. That's what he's describing, the unbeliever. Darkened, ignorant, hard-hearted. You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self and to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Ephesians 4, verse 17 and following. So again and again, the Bible draws the contrast between how the people of the world think and how the people of God think. It also points out our struggle to think the thoughts of God and to stop slipping back into our old sinful thought Patterns. This takes time, but we've got time. It takes study, but we can study. This takes prayer, but we can pray. It takes counsel, but we have godly Christian friends that can help us on the way. So how do we do this? Well, our only hope then is to think and act in a godly fashion. And in order to do that, our only hope is to change our thinking, to be renewed in mind. Good counsel. But where do we start? Well, we need to get a right view of the mercies of God. Look at verse 1. I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercies. What he's going to talk about here is motivation. He is addressing the subject of motivation. How is a Christian going to be motivated to change his or her thinking? Because this is, this is going to be radical. How are they going to be motivated to abandon certain sinful ways of reasoning and to adopt godly and spiritual ways of thinking? Well, immediately we can see that Paul's motivation has nothing to do with the individual's concept of self-improvement. He does not say, you know, you will be the better for it if you change the way you think about some things. 
He doesn't say that. This self-reformation motif has been propagated by the world to its citizens time and time again and with very meager and limited success. Why? Because one of the aspects of human nature is our resistance to change. We like the status quo, even if it's wicked. Change is hard, so change is anathema. Working with seniors, I have discovered that it isn't crankiness that lies at the foundation of their inflexibility at times. It is their preference for what is and a reluctance for the new. That's it. That's it. (coughs) The hidden attitude seems to be, hey, I've taken 50 years to perfect what I like and what I am and I'm not about to change now. But let's not pick on seniors because guess what? All of us, all of us to a man, to a woman is like this. We like what we like. (laughs) And what we like are those things that we have settled within our minds as being right or workable or comfortable or convenient or easy or which bring us pleasure and not heartache. Why do you cringe at having to learn a new hymn? I don't think that was a new hymn in Trinity. We've sung that before, but we we haven't sung it that often. It's a new hymn. Why do you oscillate in your preference to the hymnal, the brown book, rather than the red book? I would suggest it's because you know the hymns in the hymnal, you know the music, you know the words, you've sung them thousands of times, you hardly have to look at the words, you never have to look at the music, but you're not as familiar with the wording and the concepts and the music and the notation in Trinity, which is basically a Presbyterian hymnal. Because all of this is strange to your ears. Some of the tunes in Trinity are in the minor key and we don't like minor keys. Strange to our tastes. The hymnals, and that's why the hymnal is preferred over Trinity. And I would suggest that the same holds true when developing a new way of thinking spiritually. You who have been in the faith for decades know what you know. You have been good students. You know the doctrines that you've been taught. You read your you have read your Bible for years. You have prayed. You know how to pray. You're pretty well set in your thinking on religious issues. And there's very little I or any pastor could say that is revolutionary. But even when we preach something that is not so familiar to your spiritual understanding, there may be the tendency to dismiss it as irrelevant because it is new 
And it will require some thought, some investigation, some work in the scriptures in uncharted waters. What I'm saying is that people never change for the better when their only motivation is to find something else that will that they will want or like or which will cater to their present lifestyle. Our tastes will dictate the changes. Because our tastes are sinful at the core, the perceived changes will be elementary and superficial at best. So, Paul does not I say he does not appeal to us to change on the basis of our own selfish introspection or analysis. Instead, he appeals for change on the basis of God's mercies to us. What mercies? Well, if we were to begin here in Romans 12 and work backwards through the book of Romans... From chapter 11, we learn that the gospel has come to Gentiles as well as to Jews, that they were grafted into Christ. Chapter 11. God's working on expanding his people. Chapter 10, that God's righteousness has come to us in Christ and not in the law. Wow, great news. Chapter 9, God's family consists of his choice and not human will. And thus he overcomes our sinful bias. Chapter 8, we have been given the spirit of God to live for God. And we are more than conquerors in Jesus. Chapter 7, Christ gives us the victory over indwelling sin. Thus enabling us to change. Chapter 6, we can present the members of our bodies for works of righteousness and not be enslaved to a life of sin. Chapter 5, though Adam killed us with his disobedience, Christ saves us through his obedience. Chapters 3 and 4, justification is based on faith, not good works. Chapter 2, the real Jew The true child of God is the one who has been transformed on the inside, in the heart. In chapter 1, the gospel is the power of God to save everyone who believes it, even those depraved in heart and mind. That's a lot of the mercies of God, folks. That's a lot. And based on those mercies, God calls us to a renewed mind. He has been merciful to you. He has been merciful to me. God continues to be merciful. You are in the plan of God, in the forefront of his thinking. You are not an afterthought. God has willed to do you good, to be kind and forgiving to you, to see to it that you have heard the gospel and were made alive in Christ. This is Paul's motivation for change. You and I may not want to change. We love ourselves the way we are, but God wants something better for us. And because we love him, we should want what is better too. No one ever changes their thinking until they get a right view of the mercies of God. And this he gives us in his word. 
and by his spirit applies those truths to us. That brings us then to point B, the elementary ABCs of change. Change in thinking will occur only when you die to self, when you offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, which is a spiritual act of worship. How's that going to happen? Well, first you've got to change your attitude. We sometimes say that to our wayward kids. Uh, you better change your attitude because they're acting in an unscriptural or sinful way. We have to do the same. Change our attitudes. We need to be motivated by the mercies of God to change what you do with your, get it now, body. Did I read that right? Did Paul say that right? Our body? How's that enter in? Well, you know, the ancient Greeks like to make a disconnect between body and soul. Because they considered matter, all that is material, to be evil. Part of Greek philosophy. I was mentioning to the prayer meeting group that the issue concerning Jesus in the first century was not his deity, but his humanity. Why? Because humanity meant human, and human being meant a material body. So the Gnostics, these are Greek philosophers, they took their name from the Greek word, one of the Greek words for no, gnosis, Gnostics, and they said, we know. You want to know? We know. Come to us, we'll teach you. We know. Well, what they knew was not what the Bible teaches. Because what they taught was that Jesus was a spirit being and not flesh and blood. You say, what do they do about the cross? Well, a branch of the Gnostics called the Docetists comes from the Greek word meaning to seem, said, well, it just seemed like they nailed Jesus to the cross. I kind of think of it like a hologram. You know, one, have you seen that some of the more modern movies where they can depict a person kind of in a shimmery light or whatever, that, but it looks like the real person, it looks like somebody standing there, but they're not there, it's just the image. That was the Docetists, and they were part of the Gnostics. You say, well, how stupid. Well, yeah, it was stupid, because there were eyewitnesses to all of this. Much of our culture has moved to a neo-Gnostic position in emphasizing the spiritual. Oh, yeah, they got to be spiritual, oh, yeah apart from the material. The goal is to become otherworldly minded, not so attached to material things. Om, you know, all this business. Yoga. But this dichotomy in thought is not biblical. 
The Bible everywhere links spirituality with the material because, firstly, guess what? God created all matter, all material. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And if you read on, he created everything that's in the heavens and the earth. So matter cannot be evil in itself. And secondly, we as his creatures are also locked into the material universe in a, get it now, body. We are not disembodied. May I say there's no outer body way to serve God. When we talk about mind, how do, how do you put your finger on mind? It's real, but it seems to be intangible. So Paul tells us that for a change toward spirituality to occur, we will have to present our bodies as a living sacrifice to God. I like that. Sacrifice, we well understand. Living rules out suicide. But it also emphasizes the ongoing nature of the sacrifice. It isn't one time, but it's again and again It's repeated occasions, it's denying self, preferring Christ, that's the idea, that's the ongoing living sacrifice we present to Christ. Jesus taught his disciples to deny themselves, pick up their cross daily, and follow him. And he made it plain that until and unless they were willing to do so, they could not be his disciple. Luke 9, verse 23. So, in practical terms, this is precisely what Paul spells out in Romans 6, verse 11 and following. Count, let me read it. Count yourself dead. That is, reckon yourself. See yourself as dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, here's the outcome. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourself to God. Now, this is very similar to our text, isn't it? Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Back to Romans 6. Offer the parts of your body. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master. 
I put this in human terms because you are weak in your natural selves, just as you used to offer the parts of your body in slavery to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness. So now, so now, offer those parts in slavery to righteousness leading to holiness. Oh, my body and my body parts are involved in becoming holy and holy in my thinking. There's no separation from the body in this struggle to become like-minded with Christ. The body comes into play. Secondly, and most importantly, now I'm just coming to the crux of the matter. Bridle your tongue. How this works out is through a, coordinated, a coordination of forethought and action. The key to controlling the whole body, according to James, is this. <laughs> this tongue of ours. In order to speak, you have to use that member of the body, which James says is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. Romans 6, you got to present your parts, your body parts. Well, James says, here's a good place to start because this is a world of evil. It goes on. It, the tongue, corrupts the whole person. Sets the whole course of his life on fire. And is itself set on fire by hell. James 3, verse 6. Oh, boy, James, you... This is pretty powerful stuff. He also writes in verse 2, If anyone is never at fault in what he says, he is a perfect man. What? If anyone is never at fault in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to keep his whole body in check. James 3, verse 2. Here's the key, folks. There was one perfect man that existed who did this, and that was the Lord Jesus Christ. But the principle remains... Get control of your tongue and you can control every other member of your body, come what may. Learn how to use your tongue in a godly and spiritual way and you will learn how to use your eyes, your ears, your hands and any other part of the body in a godly way. Why? Because the tongue is the hardest of all to get control of. So it's like James saying, why don't you start with the real hard one first? <laughs> Go to work on that real, real hard part of the body. Get that under control. And the rest will come more easy. So here's your assignment for the week. Seek ways in which you can sacrifice your tongue as a spiritual act of worship. Verse 1 of our text. get you started, one way is to sing the hymns that we use in worship. Because 
You need to be an active partner in the worship of God's people, not just a spectator. You say, I can't sing. Or, I'm embarrassed to sing. Is that the same as saying, I won't sing? Sacrifice that pride. Make a joyful noise to the Lord and the God you worship will be well pleased. You see what I'm saying? There's one area right there. In the series on um, worship that I'm working on, I will have some things to say about music and worship. But one thing is for certain and that is that God loves music and worship. You know the Psalms, that whole book that we call the Psalms? That was the hymn book for Israel. Say, what do you mean? I mean they sung those words to God in worship. The Psalms, yeah. Now we we don't have the tunes. The, The tunes didn't survive. But the words have survived. But we know that they sung those words to God in worship, accompanied by instruments and so on. Another way, think of the mercies of God towards you, the sinner, the one with the bad mouth, and instead of offering your tongue for evil, offer it to God for righteousness sake. Well, how do you do that? You sacrifice your use of the tongue which are evil, vindictive, unkind, lying, deceptive, hurtful to others. And in that place you speak kindly, truthfully, without deception, helpfully, encouragingly, with gracious, edifying comments designed to build people up, not tear them down. And that means you're going to have to put some forethought. You're going to have to think before you speak which is always a good practice anyway. Say, what are you going to think about? You're going to think about the mercies of God to you. That his mercies are undeserved, that they have been sovereignly given, that they're free, no cost to you. Much more on this as we continue in our series. So we affect change in our thinking first by changing our attitude about the use of the body. And in particular, the tongue. Living in a sacrificial way. Dying to self. Not just, you know, like the fool in Proverbs that blurts out everything with his tongue. Well, if I thought it, I might as well say it. No, keep your thought to yourself if it's going to be hurtful. Well, I want to be honest. You're not being honest. You're being rude and crude. Bridle the tongue, James says. It's like a stallion. You're not going to get control of that beast unless there's a bridle in his mouth working on the tongue. And then thirdly, our thinking will change for the better when we resist conformity, verse 2, to the pattern of this world. 
The language is very vivid here. The New Living Translation says, Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Philip's translation, which is a paraphrase, says, Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. But we do this all the time, don't we? It's important that you understand what Paul, to, to whom Paul wrote this. He was writing to Christians in Rome. Rome, people, the most modern, the most culturally sophisticated city of the empire. One theologian observed, the Christian community in this and in other cities of the empire did live a life in utter, manifest, obtrusive contrast contrast to that lived by the multitude of ambitious, pleasure-loving, superstitious, cynical citizens by whom they were surrounded. Do you know that America is no different? It's just as secular, just as erotic, just as egotistical, just as money-loving, God-hating, pleasure-seeking, as Rome ever was. as our country. But I question if we Christians today live that separated life that is a contrast to the world. Everything from fashion jeans to bare midriff crop tops and green hair to acid rock, plush automobiles, opulent jewelry, Liberal thinking, political speech can be found in the church. The divorce rate in the church is identical to that of the world. Promiscuous conduct, sexual abuse, infidelity in marriage, shysters, con artists, flim-flam artists are all found within the confessed Christendom. How are we different? Are we different? There's something to be said for resisting conformity to the pattern of the world. To deliberately weigh the world's message on TV and newsprint and in the glossy magazines in light of God's good and pleasing and perfect will. Verse 2 of our text. Many Christians have lost their ability to discern. When they say something like, I don't see anything wrong with that, they are telling on themselves. They can't see the wrong because they've already abdicated to the world's position. Well, John gives us the sum total of all that the world has to offer. Here's what he says. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Why? Why? We ask why. He goes on. For everything in the world, and then he describes what Everything involves. Everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, 
and the boasting of what he has and what he does comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away. But the man, and I would say the man, the woman, the child who does the will of God lives forever. 1 John 1 verses 15 through 17. Here's the best incentive not to attach your wagon to the world's star. It's perishing. It's doomed. It's under the anathema and the wrath of God. And all who imbibe its philosophy and practices will perish too. You really want to be part of the world? Say, well, I think I can... No, 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 no. None of this one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom of God. That's that sacrifice that Paul's talking about in our text. Sacrificing our body. That we might be transformed in our thinking. And when we're transformed in our thinking, our actions are going to follow after Christ. Say, I'm not going to do it. I know. I'd even put it stronger. I would say, you can't do it. I can't do it. Only God's spirit in a person's life can do it. But if God's spirit is in your life, if you're a Christian, if you're a believer, not only can you do it, you must do it. If you anticipate inheriting eternal life. Because without holiness, no one will see the Lord. If you're not a believer, the I can't do it really is true. You need the Spirit of God in your life. You need forgiveness and cleansing. May he grant you that faith and repentance and draw you right now into the kingdom of God for God's glory and your good. Lord, bless thy word to us this day. May we be renewed in our thinking. Renewed in our thinking. Give us that new mind, heart to seek after it. And, and it's got to start with our body, what we do with our body. May that become a living sacrifice for you. Sometimes we just, um, we get, we, not sometimes, a lot of times, we get sidetracked into lesser things. Some of the lesser things are still good things, but they're not the best. And they're considered good by us because of our personal assessment. They may not be good. And if they lead us astray from you, they're not good. And if they give a wrong message to the world about the gospel and about Christ they're not good so I pray that you will forgive us for using our bodies in sinful ways and bring about a renewed use help us to think of the mercies of God and how merciful you have been to us how in Christ you have condescended to become one of us not in a sinful way but to show us in Christ and in his humanity, that it's possible for a human being
to love God with heart, soul, mind, strength, with all that we are, as did Jesus, and grant us his resolve as well as his spirit. Thank you for each one here this day. May you work in our hearts, plow it up, ooh, stir us up, that our church might become the shining light it needs to be in our community. For the glory of Jesus, we pray these things. Amen.